Welcome to the conference room with this week's guest, Ian Patterson. I think CEOs and, and founders are are usually pretty good generalists. So that's the first part. You, you, you're just dangerous enough to know how much you don't know about a lot of individual functions. And then you supplement that with people ideally who are smarter and more experienced than you are. Welcome to The Conference Room, a weekly podcast where business leaders and growth experts kindly share their experiences, actionable tips, and secrets to successfully grow a business. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It'll really help us out. And I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. I'm Simon Lader. Welcome to The Conference Room. Good afternoon and welcome to The Conference Room. I'm joined by Ian Patterson. Ian is a serial technology entrepreneur. He spent seven years in the event space before joining Terapeak, a data analytics company who were acquired by eBay. Then he founded and led data analytics platform vendor Exapic, which he took to a successful acquisition. And then in 2017, he founded Plurilog, a disruptive AI authentication vendor, which he successfully took public in 2020 during COVID. He 100x'd the revenues to 64 million by 2022, and he's recruited a retired NSA director and a former CSO of Forcepoint onto his board of directors, and is going to tell us all about how he did it. And I'm delighted that we managed to find time in this schedule to come into the conference room. So, Ian Patterson, good afternoon and welcome to the conference room. Simon, amazing to be here, and I love your energy. Thank you. <laughs> so... All heroes have an origin story, and you're the hero of our story. So tell me, how did you get from being in the event space through to becoming this serial technology entrepreneur? Well, I, this is this is something that uh, I, I have some fun with. So uh, we, uh, way back in the day, um, uh, when I was in high school, actually, there was a community theater attached to the high school, and that provided opportunities for those curious around technology to go in and tinker with uh, the the lighting systems and sound systems. Um, and that that early experience, I was able to parlay into uh, into a, a short time uh, where I was touring with rock and roll bands, uh, doing pyrotechnics um, and uh, and having a lot of had, having a lot of fun uh, making making some good stories. Um, it, it was a great uh, it was a great thing to do during my my formative years um, because I definitely taught a work ethic. There's nothing, tr there's nothing really like a deadline of a show starting in front of hundreds of people or thousands of people or in some cases hundreds of thousands of people that really make you appreciate uh, punctuality. Uh, and so those have been lessons learned that uh, that I've I've taken with me, even including in and into um, into the public markets where I, I spend a lot of my time now. Um, but in terms of making that transition, actually, it, it wasn't it wasn't actually too difficult. Um, the the work that I was doing was largely related to production. It was backstage. It was with technology. Uh, and so that, so I guess the switch, if you will, was at in 2010, right after completing the Vancouver Olympics. That was my uh, my hard cutoff that I told everybody. Um, I then took my skills and and parlayed those more into um, into Linux systems as opposed to lighting systems and. And kind of went uh, went into the, uh, the the tech company ecosystem at that point. 
Right. Great stuff. And how did you make the shift from when you joined um, or when you were at Exapic, you were a, a director of analytics. How did you make the switch from being a director through actually to um, form and lead your own companies? Yeah. So so at Terapeak, uh, Terapeak was an, an e-commerce analytics firm, and we had a half a trillion dollars of e-commerce transaction data um, and there were two things that we did with it. One was there is a SaaS analytics platform uh, where e-commerce retailers could log in uh, and do market research. They could figure out what they should sell, who they should sell to, what they should price at, who their competitors were. It was a lot of market research questions that that analytics tool enabled them to answer. Secondarily, though, um, there were larger uh, retailers and manufacturers who also had similar questions, but just of a different scale. Uh, and so I ran the enterprise division and worked exclusively with those enterprise customers to help them answer what products they should sell to, what markets they should enter, who they were competing with at scale. Uh, so rather than simply doing this on a on a per product basis, we were looking at a quarter million product SKUs at a time, trying to enter the brick markets, as an example. So it was much more of an enterprise focus. Um, but a lot of those those school the those skills, I should say, um, were directly applicable to other industries and and being able to answer similar types of questions, but just in in different domains. So um, so Exapic was was a company that I founded and bootstrapped. In comparison, Terapeak, where I was previously, was venture backed. So I got to sample two different flavors of funding. Um, and Exapic was largely just doing the same type of work, working on behalf of and with our large enterprise clients, helping them manage, mine, and monetize their their data assets. In some cases, it was doing similar data and analytics, helping to formulate uh, questions that the data could answer. Um, and in some cases, working more on a strategic basis around uh, what companies should do with their data. How can they extract the most value from it? Um, and in some cases, it was doing analytics. In some cases, it was not. Um, and so helping helping those those uh, those larger financial institutions, manufacturers. In some cases, I was working in the semiconductor um, industry as well, just depending on who the clients were. Um, so largely, you know, if I were to summarize and aggregate, I would say the the single uh, operation that I was doing both both across those two companies and arguably even at Pluralock where I am today uh, is to help answer questions with data. Um, that's really been the the consistent thread uh, across my career. Pluralock uh, was was actually largely the same thing. We're helping answer a cybersecurity question using data and analytics. Uh, specifically, we're answering the question, are you the right human on the device? And we're able to answer that using a form of artificial intelligence, uh, which is called behavioral biometrics. Uh, and we're able to do that in, in close to real time every couple of seconds throughout the workday. Uh, and we're providing that answer to security teams to help keep their employees safe from account takeovers, uh, insider threats, and, and similar risks in the cyberspace. Right. Okay, cool. You, you mentioned, um, just to come back to it a little bit, um, about the difference between uh, the funding um, that uh, Exapic had um, versus the funding at Terapeak, you know, one being bootstrapped and one being uh, venture-backed. Um, well, as we were talking in, in your intro, um, you actually took Pluralock public um, relatively early in its... Um, in its life, to uh, to all intents and purposes, uh, if you think about the kind of 
classic model it's kind of like bootstrap series a series b maybe series c and d right and then ipo you took a different route talk me through that a little bit the the maybe the thought process and the uh the events around that well simon variety is the spice of life and so i think you need, <laughs> you need some variety no i mean that's that's the that's the joke I, I think that it had more to do with the what problem we were trying to solve. So when when we were getting going with Pluralock, we had on day one, we had some really interesting technology. We had some patents. We had a team of world-class data scientists. We didn't really have a product. Uh, we certainly didn't have a go-to-market motion. So for the first couple of years with Pluralock, it was building that enterprise product. Uh, it was it was working on strategy. It was identifying who the early customers would would be, reaching out, getting some early pilots, converting those into into customers. And along that way, the common uh, playbook to run if you are an enterprise B two B SaaS uh, tech startup is you go raise venture financing. Um, we had raised about $4 million privately. That was mostly through angel in investors. It was a, a handful of very small um, micro funds. Um, but when it came time to the point where we would raise a large seed round or a series A round, um, what we found was that it was a very competitive landscape, number one. The second thing that we identified though is that there were thousands, literally thousands of other cyber startups who were all effectively trying to do the same thing. They were all running the same playbook. They were they were reaching out to the, the same investors. They they had similar stories. They had similar backgrounds. But the specific nuanced problem might be slightly different. Maybe they were initial authentication. Maybe they were cloud authentication. Maybe there were different ways of, of sort of tackling the identity problems. But it was still extremely competitive. And so we were coming at it from... Um, from a position of weakness in some respects, because I am Canadian, company was was based in Canada, and our early customers were actually federal. Uh, they were U.S. Department of Defense, U.S. DoD, um, and so it wasn't, it didn't look and feel exactly like a Silicon Valley based startup selling to banks and financial institutions and and kind of mid market commercial clients. And so, because we didn't pattern match exactly with what the ideal would be for for a venture backed company we were we were coming at it from kind of a, a point of weakness so that was the first part the second part that we identified though was that because cybersecurity is so fragmented and because there are thousands of of providers out there the customers were also having a massive problem simply procure, finding the right solutions and procuring the right solutions so i have one statistic we have an advisor he was the former chief information security officer for a top 5 financial institution and when he was a when he was the CISO at at this top five bank, he had over two hundred cyber products from over a hundred cyber vendors. Now, if you're if you're a top five bank, you have an army of procurement people. You can deal with that. But if you're anybody else, if you're even a fourteen thousand uh, company, it's very difficult to manage the amount of cyber products you need to deploy in order to have a robust defense and depth strategy. So part of the problem that we were identifying was just a procurement problem. Forget about whether you're the, the the latest, greatest, best cyber product. If you need 20 cyber products to actually successfully mitigate against all of the threats that are out there today, then it doesn't matter how good your product is. Cyber is a team sport. You actually need to deliver solutions, which encompass multiple problems uh, or, uh, or sorry, encompass multiple products. 
So we identified that that as we were going through this funding conversation, we also identified this, this problem around complexity and fragmentation. So that led us down to a, uh, a channel uh, strategy where we would we would sell through channel resellers rather than just going direct and selling our product. We would we would work with channel resellers to um, to to bundle multiple products and services together to actually have a solution, a consolidated solution for the customers. Um, and then the last the last key learning here uh, and observation was that a lot of these these value added resellers and what we call solutions providers, which encompass both systems integrators and and resellers, etc. Um, we're going through periods of transition. So there were a lot of baby boomer um, mom and pop uh, VARs. They were looking to retire. Um, and so we saw that. We saw the complexity and the fragmentation of the market. And we also saw that there was an opportunity to help with those transitions. Um, and so because of that, um, we, we adapted our go-to-market motion to include the acquisition um, of these channel providers, these channel solutions providers. And because we now had a, a different go-to-market, um, that actually opened up a different funding mechanism. And so because of that, we uh, we took the company public uh, right in the middle of COVID, uh, in the middle of 2020, uh, or toward, toward, towards the end of 2020, but, uh, but in the middle of COVID, um, went public very early and then used that public uh, share currency and access to capital to complete four acquisitions. Uh, and so we were able to grow successfully revenue from approximately half a million dollars a year uh, uh, at the end of 2020 to um, we closed out last year, 20, 2022, with 64 million in revenue. Wow. That's extra. 100, 100xing in, in, in what, three years is miraculous, I would say. It's, it's, that's an incredible story. Wow. So um, you're clearly somebody who doesn't necessarily um, slavishly follow um, the uh, kind of received wisdom. So um, what's your philosophy around leadership, particularly when it comes to like scaling early stage organizations? Well, I think it's... Growth is hard, regardless of whether you grow through organic means. If you if you raise a large Series B and you double headcount, I think growth is is challenging. In particular, if you grow through acquisition, you don't necessarily get to select everybody who's going to join your team because uh, you're you're growing uh, by step function and you're going to add a ton of people quickly. Uh, and so it's it, so it's challenging. I think the more prep you can do ahead of time. Uh, the better off you're going to be, both for yourself as well as for the new team who are who are going to join. Uh, and so you can show that leadership by uh, by repetition of values, uh, by trying to articulate a north star, by having a, a strong and compelling mission of of what you're ultimately trying to do. I mean, for us at Pluralock, um, we we have a lot of uh, solutions that we help our clients with. At the end of the day, I mean, there's there's the AI. Uh, through our product, through Pluralock AI, there's also a lot of other stuff that that we're doing, but it's all in pursuit of service. Um, and so we feel that we're able to best serve our customers by providing that breadth of capability. Um, and ultimately, selfishly, uh, we get to keep ourselves safe by keeping our customers safe because the customers that we help and serve are government agencies, they're large enterprises, they're people who we bank with, they're people who administer our healthcare. 
Um, and so ultimately, we're, we, we've got kind of this, this self-interest of, hey, I want my data safe with the businesses that I do business with and interact with. And therefore, um, if we can provide service to those organizations, uh, you know, we're, we're going to help everybody. So I think having that that vision um, of, of where you want to get to, that mission and purpose of why you're, why you're trying to, to do what you do, um, allows you to communicate at a scale uh, when even if you don't have the time in the day to be able to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with everybody in your company, you can still provide that leadership and that guidance um, even even at uh, at a larger scale. Right now, I love that. Um, so when you were first starting um, Lorelock, and maybe uh, back in your um, sort of Exapic days when you were kind of bootstrapping it, um, how did you recruit and find your first team you know your uh the people that were going to be responsible for finance the people that were going to be responsible for sales the people that were responsible for products you know um perhaps with Clorock when you were finding these first data scientists you know how do you go about finding the the key people that you need to do the things that you can't or won't have the bandwidth to do I think actually in the early days, it's easier uh, because if you're only trying to hire and find one or two people, uh, you can usually do that through your network. It's actually harder as the company gets success and you run out of people in your network that then then you run into the challenges uh, because then you're you're having to uh, make hiring decisions on people who you might not have a pre-existing relationship with. You might not have seen them execute um, in in a previous role. Um, I will say that uh, at Pluralock, uh, there's there's actually quite a few people who who have all worked together at uh, at Terapeak. Uh, and so we were able to uh, kind of accelerate and and cheat a little bit uh, by just taking some of the some of our past coworkers who we were really impressed with and and uh, enabling them to succeed in in a new environment. Um, but I think it's hard. I, I think I think there's no substitute to just putting in the reps and putting in the hours. Um, particularly when you have critical roles that you're trying to fill. I mean, as an example, we're a publicly traded company and and we just um we just were made a transition uh, for our CFO. Um, and and that was a uh, that was a uh, long uh, process, and there was no circumventing the fact that it was going to take a lot of hours from a lot of different stakeholders, both myself as well as the board and as well as other people on the management team and leadership team. Um, so, so there's no there's no substitute. I think that over time you do develop um, you do you do develop some processes that you can kind of reuse regardless of what the what the hire actually is. Uh, so I think that you can fall back on process to a certain extent. I think you also develop uh, with experience. You you develop a muscle memory of of certain things that you look for um, or certain uh, certain mistakes maybe that you've made in in previous roles, um, and so that helps. But it, again, it's not it's not really a substitute um, for for just putting in the hours uh, and and getting to know people on a personal basis as opposed to just just a resume in an Excel sheet or a resume in a in an, in an applicant tracking system uh, that you're trying to make a decision on. No, I, I completely agree, and I think that uh, um, all too often people make the mistake of uh, of just effectively hiring a resume, and uh, there there is so much more you know to that yeah when we talk about things like you know culture fit and how they mesh with the other members of the team and so on so no i, I completely agree so um just sort of picking up on that for a moment 
one of the I'm I'm always intrigued when I'm talking to CEOs because I think that a CEO is somewhat unique, if a unique can be somewhat, but it's somewhat unique um in the hierarchy of an organization in that um if you're a VP of sales, you've probably been a sales guy and you've probably been a sales manager. If you're a chief product officer, you've probably been a VP of products and you've probably been a product manager. Um, and if you look at all of the C-suite, the chances are they've probably done the role of all the people that work for them, okay? Except for the CEO, all right? The CEO may have come through technology, may have come through sales, may have come through ops or finance, but by default, it's highly unlikely that I've done every role or, or performed every function um, that the people who report into them are doing, Okay. So as a CEO and a second, at least second time CEO now, um, how do you overcome the challenge of managing people whose job you haven't done yourself? It's an interesting question. I think that from my own experience, uh, because I've been fortunate to have a, a, a pretty varied background in terms of the the, the functions that I have done, I'll, I won't say roles, but I'll just say functions. Um, I think that there's a lot of familiarity with most parts of the business. So if I look at uh, if I look at Exapic as an example, when you're bootstrapping a business of one person, by definition, you are doing everything. <laughs> you are chief bottle washer. Uh, you're you're taking out the garbage, et cetera. And you're also, uh, you know, trying to stand up a Hadoop cluster. And you're also trying to make sure that your, uh, you know, $10 a month virtual server in the cloud isn't going to fall over and, and deploying uptime monitoring. And you're also doing sales and you're also doing marketing. But I, I do take your point as, as companies grow um, uh, and have more specialized functions. Uh, I've certainly not been a general counsel in the past. I've certainly not had uh, extensive corporate finance experience in the past. Although I would I would argue that by now I probably have. Um, so I think that 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 is that is a bit of a challenge. It's usually grounded, though. I mean, most most founders, most CEOs that I know are really good generalists, and they might have one or two crafts that they've picked up. That mean they might be a uh, a great marketer, they might be a great product person. I think in my case, um, I've always had a split between sales and and technology. So, I mean, call me call me a you know chief pre sales officer if you want. I, I think that that uh, in the same way that that Steve Jobs was was a product guy, you know, you could kind of bucket him into into the product category. I think um, I think you could probably bucket myself into a technical sales category, um, and and not be too far off. But but having said that, I think I think CEOs and and founders are are usually pretty good generalists. So that's the first part. You, you're just dangerous enough to know how much you don't know about a lot of individual functions, and then you supplement that with people ideally who are smarter and more experienced than you are. I mean, part of the joy that I have as a CEO is that I I am intentionally looking for people who are more experienced, who are more qualified, whose job I certainly couldn't do at the levels that they are doing. And then adding those people to the team, uh, and I think success actually looks like if if I can add somebody who is more experienced, if they have more credentials, if they've if they've worked in bigger businesses, done more deals, worked on harder problems than we are today, um, I I have succeeded, uh, and that's that's just how we look at at all of the at all of the hires that we make at at this level, right? Uh, 
a famous uh, the famous quote of if I'm the smartest guy in the room, I'm in the wrong room, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So um, over the whether we look at specifically Pluralock or previously at Exapic, what do you think have been your biggest challenges as CEO? I think that the the funding structure was different uh, between Terrapeak, which was venture backed, Exapic, which was bootstrapped, Pluralock. We went public at a at a very early stage, and we're we're now growing through uh, growing through acquisition. So I think that there's been steep learning curves across all of those uh, those different uh, funding structures, which have which has translated into culture which is translated into resource availability, which is translated into uh, capacity. So I think there's been a lot of downstream impacts of choosing different uh, mechanisms to finance, um, some of which are obvious and some of which are are not very obvious. Um, so that's that's been a, a pretty steep learning curve. Uh, but I think that that with all, uh, you know, with all challenges or with adversity, I mean, that's also how you learn and grow. Uh, and so I think that the flip side to challenges and adversity is that you you end up uh, on the other side, somebody who's a whole lot more experienced, who now has a wider breadth of experience, um, and it positions you to take on the next challenge, whatever that whatever that next challenge is. So I look at those things as, um, as learning opportunities. And I, I would say that I've been very fortunate to have a lot of those learning opportunities, particularly since... Um, particularly sort of post-COVID, because uh, I feel like we've had an accelerated time, certainly a plural lock uh, where we've done four acquisitions. We've we've had an accelerated learning to, to integrate these companies, to integrate the teams, uh, to do so uh, while in the public eye as a publicly traded company um, with a, a much higher bar of, of regulatory obligations and reporting. Uh, so, so it's definitely been a challenge, but I think it's one that we and the team have, have been uh, to, to be able to get through, and and so now I'm I'm actually really excited about what that allows us as a team and as a company to be able to tackle moving forward. Right. Just to pick up on um, just the, you mentioned about the uh, the um, heightened uh, regulatory compliance that you have to obviously you know, adhere to as a small, typically uh, and probably traditionally very nimble organization. Um, and and you as a as a sort of a startup founder, how did you um, first of all, how did you get your head around all of the various sort of compliance issues of 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 becoming a um, a public traded company, and how did that impact on the culture and just the kind of day to day operating rhythm, uh, where from the the days or weeks before you went public, you could really do what you want to the day after or the days leading up to, where you had to be a lot more, for want of better term, by the book. How did that impact on you as the leader and the culture as a whole? I'd say the biggest thing is time. Um, so for us, it was about a nine-month process from the point of deciding to go public to, to becoming traded on the exchange. Uh, I, think, I think that was partly slowed down a little bit by COVID, although... Uh, everybody that I've talked to says you really can't get public in less than six months. So, um, you know, before deciding to go public, life looked very different. During the go public process, life looked very different. And then post being public, life looked very different. So there were kind of three distinct phases. I think the biggest thing um, was the op tempo. Uh, when we were private, it really didn't matter if, if we closed the end of the month within five days or six days. 
it really didn't matter. I mean, we didn't have audited financials. We, we typically just did a review engagement and, and whether it closed on the 30th or the 1st, there wasn't really any negative ramifications. Um, as a public company, it's completely different. You must file your financials on time uh, or else. And the or else is actually fairly, fairly grave and significant. And so the, the downstream impacts of that are, are pretty wide reaching. It means that everybody in the organization needs to work towards those deadlines. Now, in some cases, uh, some departments are more affected than others. So sales obviously will have a, have specific targets that they must close deals by. That then translates into the, the finance and accounting teams where they must close the books in order to get those over to the auditors for them to review in order to get that to the board to ultimately sign off on. And so those things have to happen. Um, and that is for, for people who have not worked in that uh, environment in the past, that is a very different op tempo. That's a very different culture. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, kind of going going way back to my experience in the in the entertainment industry working working in production, it's not dissimilar from having a uh, albeit entertainment show start at seven o'clock on the nose. Uh, and now to be clear, the show never starts at 7 p.m. It, you always have to start a minute or two late uh, for good luck reasons. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's going to it's going to start at seven or seven oh five. It's not going to start tomorrow at seven. Right. It right. has to happen that day. And so there's there are definitely some similarities there um, in, in, in that respect. And it just has it has a, a, a speed and a rhythm that is very dissimilar to a private company where, where those pressures are absent. And how did you how did you um, guide the transition of the culture and, and, and get people on board with that change in operating rhythm? Um, because if somebody's used to join, if someone's used to being in a 30, 40 person company where anything, well, I won't say anything goes, but there's a lot more fluidity and it's perfectly acceptable for things to kind of happen when they happen within reason to this is a much more structured, much more regulated environment. How did that impact on the culture? How did you um, help that transition to take place, and perhaps how did that alter um, your um, recruiting patterns moving forward? I think the big thing is if there is momentum or if there is not. And so, what I mean by that is, uh, when we were going down the public process, we told uh, the organization, "Here is what's going to happen. We will be public. Here are the specific dates. We must hit these dates." But there wasn't momentum yet. It was it was simply the CEO and the CFO telling the staff, "Here's what's going to happen." It took us a little bit of time to to build that momentum into the machine that is the company. And now that that momentum is built for a new person to come in, they already see what is happening. They see the reports. They see people. Uh, it might they might have to work an extra hour or two after after five p.m. to get something out on time, and so they see that momentum, and it's easier for them to assimilate into that process because there's just so much momentum built into every aspect of the business. So I think that that it's really that has been the key distinction. Um, you know, going from a, a a standing start to to having that momentum. Now, when we're adding an additional team or an additional person, it's a, it's a lot easier. I think, um, you know, I think that there's, there's probably things that you can do. Uh, if I were to do it over again, I probably would have uh, tried to instill quarterly, uh, quarterly timelines uh, 
in the business so that the transition from being private to public isn't as jarring. You know, if you can operate the company as if it is public before you go public, then you've you've got a whole lot more practice and, and reps in. Um, and that's certainly something that we we didn't do um, uh, with Plurlock, although it's it's something that I probably would recommend to somebody else if if they were going through the same process. Right. Okay. So, what three tips would you recommend um, for somebody that wants to follow in your footsteps of being a CEO? I think that the the thing that I've been able to do is to remain agnostic and not religious about uh, a prescribed path. Uh, if anything, I've I've tried to look at every situation and and try and answer the question: What is the right thing to do for the business? And in some cases, the right thing to do might be to go down and and play the venture game, raise venture capital, and run that playbook. In some cases, you might have a business uh, that's much more boutique that doesn't that truly is not venture scale. Uh, and so then bootstrapping it and and kind of growing at a, at a slower pace, but at a more sustainable pace might be the right path. And then in other cases, you might find yourself in an industry that that lend itself really well to a roll-up strategy. And then partnering with private equity or, or going public might be the right outcome. So the, I guess the first tip would be looking at uh, the situation and taking a first principles approach to saying, what is the right thing to do in this situation, which might differ than what I thought I was going to be when I got here. Uh, and it might also be different than what your peers are doing um, at, at a similar stage. So, so I think that's the first one, remaining agnostic and, and assessing each situation uh, on its own merits and from a first principles perspective. I think the second thing is, is try and gravitate towards um, problem solving as opposed to product sales. I think that in a lot of cases, um, founders in particular, uh, CEOs get enamored a little bit with the thing that they have built and trying to jam a potentially a round peg into a square hole um, when it comes to selling their product. If you if you instead change the conversation to what is the problem we're trying to solve, which might include your product, but it might also include some professional services. It might also include uh, bundling in a, potentially a competitive product. If the thing that you're able to do is then solve the customer's problem, that is a better outcome, even if it's less financially rewarding for you in the short term, it's a better outcome because it's going to lead to a longer lasting customer relationship in the long term. So I think it's it's really around problem solving as opposed to product selling. Um, and then I think that the the third thing is, is try and have a long time horizon. Um, personally, uh, I... I uh, I recently decided uh, a couple of years ago, I decided that I'm going to stay professionally active until I've, I'm 85 years old. Uh, and so that actually gives me a 50 year time horizon to, to accomplish something. And when you start to measure the impact you want to have on the world, not in terms of months or not even in terms of years, but actually in terms of multiple decades, you sort of, you give yourself permission to take a breath and not be so frenetic in, in your pace. Um, and so, with Pluralock as an example, uh, I, I don't I don't know um, how long uh, uh, you know I, I don't know that Pluralock will have a fifty year time horizon. Maybe it will, uh, but I know that I will I will certainly be professionally active for for a long period of time. And so, um, by having that time horizon, it allows us to make decisions like what is the right thing to do for this customer if we intend to to be active, if we intend to stick around for a long period of time. And I think that that, that creates, um, uh, it almost gives you permission to, to do the right thing for the people because the people are going to stick around. So that would be my, my three tips. 
That's great. So tell me a little bit more about Plural. We, you, you mentioned a little bit um, earlier, but tell me a bit more about you know who Pluralock is, who they serve, and, and how they and what problems they solve for their customer base. So Pluralock is two things. We're publicly traded, so we're listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under the ticker PLUR. So folks are, are welcome to, to look us up there. Um, functionally, we work with mid-market and enterprise organizations, both both public sector as well as uh, on, on the private sector side. Uh, and we are helping them with IT and cybersecurity. Um, we have our own proprietary products. So we have Pluralock AI, which is a form of behavioral biometrics where we're able to identify who you are based on how you type on a keyboard and move a mouse in a matter of seconds. Uh, that is useful for, um, uh, for identifying account takeovers, MFA failures, um, or and or insider threats. Uh, to a certain extent, user behavior uh, analysis is also possible with our tool. Um, but it really, it, it forms a, a key element of a defense in depth strategy when you're considering identity risks. Um, for those cyber practitioners uh, listening, uh, the the new Gartner name for this area is Identity Threat Detection Response (ITDR), uh, sort of a similar spinoff or or evolution of EDR, Endpoint Detection Response, but really a recognition that identity is the new perimeter, and we need new tools to to be able to defend that. So that's what uh, Pluralock AI is all about. We do also have some CASB capabilities and some SSO capabilities, but the thing that is different that we have, uh, you know, dozens, uh, half a dozen patents on, et cetera, is this behavioral biometrics technology. So that's that's part of the business. The second part of the business uh, is that we are we are scaling through the acquisition of um, regional cybersecurity solutions providers. Uh, these are a mix of resellers and professional service organizations. Um, they typically have very long-standing relationships with mid-market and enterprise uh, customers. Um, we have over 600 customers today, inclusive of um, everybody from the U.S. Federal Department uh, of, of Homeland Security. We have Department of Defense, Army, Navy, Air Force, etc., uh, multiple civilian agencies. We also do quite a lot of business with uh, California state agencies. California uh, is actually, I think, the fifth or sixth largest economy of the world, uh, which most people don't necessarily recognize, but it's quite large. Um, and then our, our commercial clients are more in the mid-market and enterprise. Um, think large financial institutions, large chemical companies, critical infrastructure, healthcare, um, but organizations who have both a, a deep-seated uh, uh, need for uh, strong cyber defense against uh, threat actors as well as those who form um, or th those who have a, a, a lot of regulatory obligations. Right. Okay, cool. So what's next for you and for Pluralog? Well, I think keep keep executing on our mission. We've we've grown uh, quite a lot over the last, uh, really last two years, but, but last year in particular, we closed three of our four acquisitions. So there's a lot of work that we're doing internally right now to uh, to integrate those teams, integrate those companies, realize economies of scale, and then also cross-sell uh, our our proprietary Pluralock AI uh, SaaS products through those, those sales channels that we acquire. So there's a lot of work to do um, right now with, with what we have already, uh, with the scale that we've already accrued. I think that there's also a bit of a timing uh, element where because of how the markets have done over the last year or two, um, I think that there's some opportunities for us to continue exploring and evaluating other potential acquisition opportunities. 
So we are we are trying to allocate enough time to be able to both work inwardly, but also look outwardly uh, and make sure that we're not missing any opportunities that that might come our way. Right. That's great. And if people wanted to reach out and connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? So, uh, so following your advice, I will not give out my personal home phone number, uh, which, which Simon was was careful in the pre-interview to to make sure I didn't do. Um, Simon, I am curious about who did actually do that because we might need to help them with their own cyber defenses. A little bit. <laughs> um, so, Ian at plurlock.com is my email address. I'm Ian. Uh, sorry, I'm at Ian L Patterson on Twitter and LinkedIn. I would also we're we're um, we're just uh, putting we're just about to put out a, a cheat sheet uh, around cyber defenses in the age of AI because uh, we've had a, a really series of game changing uh, technology revelations with ChatGPT and what that's going to do now for what the bad guys are able to to bring to bear. Um, so we're putting together some content around uh, around what you should do on a defensive side as a result of these new AI tools. So that will be available pluralock.com slash cheat sheet. Uh, so that's P-L-U-R-I-L-O-C-K dot com slash cheat sheet. Um, and that'll be a free resource and and useful both for uh, business owners as well as security practitioners, as well as individuals uh, around how to stay cyber safe. Great stuff. And I'll make sure we put links to uh, all of those uh, all of those things um, in the show notes below. Ian, this has been such a joy. Um, I've just been bowled over by uh, not just uh, your story and uh, the success that you've had at Plorot, but also how you've managed to kind of bring these two worlds of kind of like fast-moving, um, dynamic startup with what would be traditionally much more regulated space of being in a in a, uh, a publicly traded organization. So uh, it's been an absolute joy chatting to you. So Ian Patterson, thank you so much for joining us here on The Conference Room. Simon, thank you so much. Coming up next week on The Conference Room, I'll be talking to the CEO of VMRay, Carsten Villand. What is the common pattern between my customers? Yeah, What is the profile that I should look for? And you need to move from being opportunistic yeah, and chasing every single opportunity that comes up to really systematically approaching the market. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And make sure you visit our website, theconferenceroompodcast.com to see all the other episodes and to get access to the show notes and resources mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your network or better still, go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other podcast platform and leave us a five-star review. It'll only take you a moment, but it'll mean the world to us. And please don't hesitate to tell us which topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. To get in touch, drop us a line in the comment section or send us a message on social media. Just search for The Conference Room Podcast or me, Simon Lader, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok. I'm always open to a conversation. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be alerted when a new episode goes live every week. Thanks so much for listening to The Conference Room, and until next time, keep talking. Mm-hmm.